The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. I could say anti-Semitic things and Adidas can't drop me. Now what? Now what? But Adidas did just that, dropping Ye, the volatile rapper formerly known as Kanye West, in the wake of his barrage of anti-Semitic remarks. The breakup of the almost decade-long collaboration will cost Adidas a nearly $250 million hit to its earnings this year, but it will cost Ye even more, reportedly $1.5 billion, and his status as a billionaire. It's also created a morass of intellectual property rights from their multi-billion dollar collaboration. My guest is attorney Zach Kurtz, who founded the law firm Sneakers and Streetwear Legal Services. Zach, so about two weeks ago, Ye said that Adidas can't drop him. Do you think there's something in his contract that he thought would protect him? I mean, I think that's just Kanye being Kanye, thinking that he was invincible. I think it was almost the opposite that there was something in the contract that a statement like that could hurt him, whether it's morals, non-disparagement. I think it was also a challenge to Adidas when he said that, as well as his additional comments. We don't see the contract, so we don't know the specific language, but I'm pretty sure there's a morals clause in it, and I'm sure Adidas had the right to do that based on the situation here. When we're talking about sneakers, are we talking about patents or trademarks? It's all types of intellectual property, and a lot of people interchange all three of them, whether it's patents, trademarks, copyrights. But usually what happens is you'll have a sneaker design, and design will typically have a design patent, and you could get several design patents for it. And then as you know, the companies will also have their trademarks, whether it's a swoosh or a Adidas sign, and they'll put those on the shoes as well. So an actual shoe is a combination of design patents, trademarks. Some companies even have trade dress when the design patents expire. Or at the same time, they'll get different aspects or features of the shoe to be trademarked. So it's really a combination of all the above. And in the contract, the IP ownership and licensing and transferring and how the IP will be used and shared is discussed in the contract. Adidas said in a statement that, It is the sole owner of all design rights to existing products as well as previous and new colorways under the partnership. Is this firing a warning shot at Kanye because he's claimed that Adidas stole his designs and took creative liberties with his brand? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head right there. I think that's exactly what it was, sort of a warning sign, letting us know a little bit of the contract terms that it probably says that Adidas is going to own all those designs, Kanye will not get them upon termination, and that any new iterations will be controlled by Adidas. I think that was a warning sign to the public. It was also to Kanye saying, you know, get out of here. Don't think you're going to take your designs with you. Kanye has the trademarks for Yeezy, YZY, Yeezus, among others. His company has more than 160 trademark applications and registrations for his Yeezy brand. So Kanye has the trademarks in this deal. What does Adidas have? So Kanye owns his IP that he brought to the table, which is, as you stated, Yeezy and YZY and all the logos and trademarks associated with his brand. In this deal, 
all the new designs for the Adidas shoes, the 350s, the 750s, literally almost every shoe that Adidas has made with Kanye, the design patents for those appear to be owned by Adidas. What we see from the facts and everything on the table with the design patents and the trademarks and such, it looks like Adidas owns almost all of the designs of these shoes, and Kanye owns and was licensing his YZY and Yeezy brand to be put on those shoes. So... Just to get to the you know the basics here, people who think they're buying a sneaker designed by Kanye West or Ye, they're buying a sneaker designed by someone else. Yeah, I mean, technically putting it, Kanye definitely has his stamp on it. And then that's sort of one of his arguments and why he wanted to leave Adidas and a lot of the companies, because control. Ultimately, Kanye will work with the designers and the contract will talk about how much control he has, how much approval he has, when he can do this, when he can say that. But ultimately, it's, it's Adidas or, you know, the companies who make a lot of the, the major decisions. What does Kanye have the right to do owning the trademarks? When this deal terminates, he's going to have the ability to use his own trademarks, what he owns on other shoes. Depending on the contract, it might have a wind-down period or it might have some restrictions in it that say for X amount of time you can't enter this sneaker market or, you know, running shoes or athletic shoes, something like that. But I think upon termination, like we have now, it's up to Kanye to take his trademarks with him and to have new designs or use his trademarks for other purposes on clothing. And he does own several other design patents. One was for the Yeezy slide. And I think to me, that's the most interesting one, because although his name is on the design patent as the owner and the inventor, uh, it's still associated with Adidas. When everyone thinks of the slide, which is one of the you know top-selling Yeezy shoes, Adidas Yeezy shoes, they associate it with Yeezy, Adidas Kanye Yeezy slide. So I think that if Kanye wants to bring it with him, or if Adidas wants to use that same slide, you know, without the Ye branding, there'll be a good legal argument, or it'll, it'll be tricky to say, hey, there's that there's not confusion, or that consumers don't associate whatever that is with Kanye or with Adidas. So he also owns a high-heeled shoe. And I would usually say he'd be able to take those with him and use it. But I'm not sure about the easy slide. I think Adidas could definitely make some arguments. So essentially, it's Kanye just working with new designers and creating his new designs and new sneakers, brand new. So now, as far as Adidas, they own these designs. Can they just put out the same shoes without the Yeezy trademarks? There's been talk about that, you know, and that has happened before. Other companies have done such a thing. You know, when an athlete leaves or the contract expires, they'll take off his branding and his trademark. And people have, in the sneaker community, some don't like that when that occurs. And I think in this situation, if Adidas just stripped the Yeezy branding and started selling Yeezys, there'd be a lot of outrage just at Adidas for doing that after they terminated with Kanye. But I think there'd be all sneaker heads and people in the community who purposely wouldn't buy the shoes for that reason. Uh, at the same time, there probably would be the opposite. So the sneaker world is crazy, <laughs> to be honest. Skechers said that Ye showed up unannounced and uninvited at its corporate headquarters in Los Angeles on Wednesday. For what reason, they didn't say. So if Ye wants to make his own sneakers, that's not going to be so easy, is it? It's a lot harder than it looks, you know, and only a couple companies have the ability to do what Adidas is doing, you know, to produce sneakers at such fast turnaround times at the same time. That amount of stock, the 350 They have made so many of those, and it's very rare that companies could manufacture the amounts that Kanye wants. I think that was a big part of the deal, too. Kanye, when he was shopping and trying to get out of Adidas before this all occurred, heard he was reaching out to other companies, and he just couldn't find other companies, but it sounded like to actually do this. And that's a big thing. If you want to do something by yourself like Kanye wants to do, he's going to have a hard time finding a manufacturer, especially now after everything that's gone down. 
Do these celebrity endorsements or celebrity co-branding, do they bring the sales to these sneakers? I mean, can Adidas just put out the same kind of sneaker, but it won't get as many sales because it doesn't have that celebrity factor? Yeah, definitely. I think what we see in the sneaker industry is, is exactly that. Celebrities, influencers, collaborations, they've been going through the roof lately. And because of the collaborators, these companies are able to sell out shoes quicker. And Nikes and such will sell out no matter what, to be honest. But when you add the Travis Scott to it, it just turns the factor, the wow factor and the price up tenfold. So I, I think you're right. That's why all these companies are reaching out to celebrities and doing collaboration shoes. Because people want to see that now. They don't just want a regular, you know, shoe or a different colorway. They want someone that they know and someone they can connect with, whether it's an artist, an entertainer, someone that they like uh, on that shoe. And when the companies do that, it definitely helps their bottom line. So do they have to be careful, though? Because the celebrity has panache is one thing, but a lot of celebrities like Kanye come with, you know, different problems. So there is this explosive element added. You're exactly right. I think that's the most important thing that we should take out of this situation. Influencers are great and they can help your bottom line with sales. And, you know, they could, if you pick the right one, you can make a company, you know, explode and do great, especially for these small startups. But picking the right one and doing your due diligence is super important. Uh, I remember reading something recently where they said in 2022 was the first time that uh, the stock market, uh, when they're analyzing companies for their IPO, that they had the risk of influencers listed. And I think that says a lot that influencers in society now have, you know, they're they're good, but they're also so risky that people must analyze that in, in every aspect of, you know, a company. And I think these brands should be doing that for sure every single time with the contract. Your firm does sneaker and streetwear legal services. How much litigation is there or legal work is associated with sneakers and shoes? It's a lot. It's a lot. It's (laughs) enough that I could have my own practice strictly doing sneakers and streetwear. (laughs) And I love it. And it's more just than just litigation. But we're touching on a lot of the the main areas that are covered here. Sneaker design and contracts. And it's a lot of IP. You know, it's, it's heavy IP and heavy contracts. And it's really fun, but you get in these situations with influencers or, you know, designers and shoes and such, and there tends to be litigation. So it's been taken off a lot. As you see in the past couple of years, there's been a lot of litigation relating to uh, independent designers and trademarks. So how many sneakers do you own? <laughs> if you can see me, I have a, probably 300 or so behind me, color coordinated, but I'm weird like that. How about you? No, no, I, I don't own any sneakers. As you can tell, I don't have much knowledge of this area of designer sneakers. But maybe after this, I'll start. Thanks so much, Zach. That's Zach Kurtz, founder of the law firm Sneakers and Streetwear Legal Services. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Next Tuesday, New York City's wage transparency law goes into effect. It will make it mandatory for employers to share the salary or hourly wage in postings. Joining me is Ann Dana, a partner at King & Spaulding. Tell us about New York City's new law. So I think it's... 
it's important in understanding the New York City pay transparency law to place it into the broader U.S. context of pay disclosure laws that are getting passed right now. In the past few years, we've seen a real proliferation of these types of laws, and that trend is expected to continue. And I think it's important to understand that context in order to see how New York City is kind of at the forefront of some of the changes in these laws. So one of the key differences that we've really been seeing in the passage of these laws is that originally the laws were really focused on being reactive and they were only requiring pay disclosure when somebody asked for salary information, whether it was an applicant or when they were given a conditional offer. And now what we're seeing is a shift in the laws and the laws are becoming more proactive with states and cities amending these pay disclosure laws requiring employers to provide proactively salary ranges up front with posting of job advertisements. And that's exactly what the New York City law is doing. So all employers in New York City are going to be required to include the minimum and the maximum annual salary or hourly wage in any advertisement for a job or an advertisement for a promotion or transfer opportunity internally at the company. And that range may be extended from the lowest to the highest salary or wage the employer in good faith believes at the time of the posting it would pay for the advertised job promotion or transfer opportunity. And this is going to be a big change for a lot of employers who haven't necessarily been disclosing that information publicly. Why don't employers want to disclose that information? Because as a job seeker, you look at an ad and should I apply for this ad? Well, how much does it pay? A lot of times that must stop people from applying for the job. Well, I think there's a variety of reasons that businesses may not want to actively disclose in a job posting what they're willing to pay. Some of that might be they don't want their competitors to know what they're willing to pay. Part of it may be, you know, that they want to be able to look at the candidates and assess, you know, I'd be willing to pay more for candidate A who has 15 years of experience versus candidate B who maybe only has two years of experience. So setting that range up front in a job posting may not be the place where they want to originally open that discussion. However, they're not going to have an option anymore when it comes to New York City and other similar jurisdictions. Does the law apply to all employers, whoever puts out a job application, or are there limits? So it's going to apply to all employers with four or more employees, as long as there's at least one employee in New York City. And it's going to apply to all positions that can or will be performed, at least in part, in New York City. So that is going to be a little bit complicated for some employers to figure out, particularly for multi-jurisdictional employers. Obviously, with the COVID pandemic, we've seen the rise of remote workers, whether that is kind of a fully remote position versus a partially remote position where a worker may be in New York City two days a week, but in Connecticut three days a week. In that situation, the New York City law would apply to that job posting. For large multi-jurisdictional employers who are possibly looking for employees in any state um, to fill a job position that's fully remote, they're going to need to look at New York City's law as well. I take it the point of this is not just to make life easier for job seekers, that there's also a hope that it will promote pay equity? Yes, I think proponents of pay disclosure laws do argue that these types of laws will help close the wage gap for women and minorities. 
you know, while it remains to be seen if this becomes a reality as these laws get passed, I think there's no doubt that these laws provide more pay information to applicants and to employees. And I think that we do anticipate that we're going to see that impact in the workplace, particularly, you know, I think some commentators are predicting that companies are going to be able to see what salary ranges their competitors are offering and therefore kind of match what competitors are paying, which could actually alter some of the recruiting methods that are going on right now. I think other people are also anticipating that this may give rise to more pay equity litigation. So explain what kind of pay equity litigation you're talking about. So one of the recommendations we are making to employers is to carefully take a look and assess whether or not they need to do an internal pay equity audit and look at how their salary ranges are being paid for current employees. So obviously, once you are posting job salary ranges for a position that is being advertised, current employees are going to be able to look at that job posting and determine whether or not they are currently making an amount within that salary range. And as more employees are having access to information about pay ranges, some commentators do expect that workers will become more disgruntled and may start asking more difficult questions about why they're making less money than somebody else of a different gender or a different race, giving rise to more pay equity litigation. I suppose that answers my earlier question about why employers wouldn't necessarily want these kinds of laws. Have you found more companies focusing, you know, without being pushed by outside agencies, focusing on ESG? Definitely. I think more companies are becoming focused on ESG as more customers, consumers, employees are asking questions related to their ESG. So tell me about the penalties associated with these laws. So this is one of the key differences in how different states and jurisdictions are looking at what the penalties will be for failure to comply with these types of laws. Here in New York City, the Commission on Human Rights is entitled to investigate complaints by employees or applicants, and the Commission can actually issue penalties. So the Commission came out with guidance that effectively said that there will be no money for the first violation if an employer can cure the violation within 30 days of service of the complaint. Um, however, you know, a second penalty, you know, a second violation, the commission can end up issuing a penalty of up to $250,000. And it really remains to be seen what these penalties will look like for a second or third violation. Also important is to understand that there's a private right of action under the New York City law, but it's limited to current employees who are bringing a claim against their current employer. Applicants for a new position who are not employed by the employer do not have a private right of action, so they can't bring civil litigation against the employer in court. Will this be a heavy lift, you know, complying with these laws? Would it be a heavy lift for big employers Will they all be calling their attorneys to ask what to do? I think it really depends how much thought employers have put into what they're paying their employees. For those employers who have seen this legislation coming, a lot of them have been preparing and thinking through how to make these pay disclosures once the laws are in place. For other employers 
who are caught a little bit flat-footed, they may not be as prepared and they may be scrambling come November 1. You said earlier that you see this as a trend that's going to spread, these pay transparency laws. Do you think it depends on how well they work out in the states where they are currently on the books or that it's just a trend that's going to continue no matter what? I think it's a trend that's going to continue no matter what. I think that there's a real hunger right now from employees for access to more information about pay. And I think that there's a trend with employers really looking to ensure they have employee trust and pay disclosure is one of the ways to do that. I also think that, you know, how these laws work out, it will take a while for any sort of real data to come out. And so I think in the meantime, we're going to see a continuation of these laws being passed. Well, thanks so much, Anne. That's Anne Dana, a partner at King & Spaulding. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.